Welcome to Help from Future Self. What's going on, Archons? Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self, the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. And this week I have with me returning a longtime Keyforge friend and past guest on this show. Let's give a warm welcome to Aurora. How's it going? I'm doing great and uh, happy to be uh, Keyforge friends once more. Yes. Um, so Aurora approached me with a, I guess, a topic and concept that you have been playing around with for the last two years, you said. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I've been I've been exploring Keyforge variants for about two years in the Type Shapers uh, uh, leagues and tournaments that I run. Um my initial objective has been to find some kind of variant which allows you to bring your own deck, uh, allows you to not play your best deck, as in what you usually expect from Adaptive, and that does not rely on third-party uh, ranking systems like SAS to determine deck level, to cap the deck level, what like we do with the SAS caps. And also, I wanted a variant where you don't ever play your opponent's deck. I couldn't find that, but I think I found the next best thing, which is uh, the Newton variant. Yes, and this also coincided with a perfect timing because in the Help from Future Self Discord, there was a discussion that came about from Captain Stupendous and Sky Jedi. And so as a result, uh, I thought it was the perfect way to roll into basically this topic of the Newton. Because they're basically, at the end of the day, both talking about having no chains exist and using it one for deck balance and one for format balance in the form of the way adaptive is played. And so... Aurora, why don't you break down Newton in its full entirety and the results you've had and why you think this is such a great format moving forward as a tournament, or more so, I guess you said, as a league variant. Yeah, a league. And that's very popular now in Keyforge, just getting to play Keyforge week in, week out with a long-term sort of objective being um, strived for. Yeah, okay, so... um... The basics of it is that uh, the, the rules for Newton is that you play uh, a best of two with each opponent. Uh, you bring a deck, they bring the deck, you play a regular Alcon match, and then you swap decks and play another match, another game. Um, what we do in order to make this uh, interesting is that uh, the winner, uh, if, if, if somebody wins the game 2-0, Instead of getting two points, they get three points. And this is something that is less practical to do in tournaments because you'll end up with quite a bit of ties after a number of rounds, a number of uh, Swiss rounds, like you usually do. Mm-hmm. But in a league, uh, you can play round robin in a group of uh, five or six players or even eight. And then uh, you usually don't have as many ties uh, ending after the round robin. And you also do another round robin for the top cut in the league. And that comes out really nice for leagues. And we usually, uh, in my experience, have a clear winner. Um, 
the benefits of this over adaptive obviously is that uh, you don't have to uh, bid chains. I, I'm sure there are lots of people that enjoy bidding chains, but I personally do not like chains as a balancing factor. I've written articles about this. Uh, basically, my perception is that uh, increasing chains makes the game more random, and I, I don't like that. I like the amount of random there is in it right now. Uh, so okay. I like to avoid having chains, and that's basically the variant that uh, came out. There's also the Tesla variant, which is very similar and is uh, much better for tournaments, in which you play one round Archon, one round Reversal, alternating. It doesn't have to start with Archon. It can start either. Usually, random start is best. Um, and uh, that is very good for tournaments. Uh, yeah, so that, that's basically it. So sorry, Tesla is is like each round you're so, you're so alternating. same as aspect of adaptive, except you're not playing a, uh, a I guess a best of three aspect. It's just a single round game, but you don't know if it's going to be you're playing your opponent's deck or you're playing your deck necessarily. Exactly, to start. Like it's randomized to start and then it just alternates moving forward. So you can't choose just your best deck because there's a chance you're not playing it and it could hurt you. That's the idea, right? Yeah, basically. Uh, like if you play Tesla and you start with Archon, then uh, it favors better decks because uh, whoever has the best decks in the round one will have an advantage in following rounds and it kind of stays at a high level. But if you start with a randomized uh, first round, uh, then what happens is it kind of balances out and you basically want to bring some kind of some form of middling deck that can do both uh that you're both comfortable in playing against and uh playing with uh so that's that's my preferred variant for tournaments although there is an element in uh, tesla where uh some players can bring really really strong decks and just get lucky on the first round and then it kind of could cascade later in into later rounds and they can keep having advantage. Uh, but it, it's still a very nice way to disadvantage bringing your best deck. Mm-hmm. It's basically the, the pre-game thought before the actual tournament begins is what's yeah. being strived for. Yeah. So for, for the Newton, what is, um, have, have you had like any really, I guess, issues with the fact that, the tie system like can create uh, the issue of obviously maybe people just going one on one, one on one. Like I'm, I'm more thinking not in a points regard, but just for the variety of the game. Because if it's constantly like one person wins, one person wins, it's just like okay, so everyone wins with their own deck, sort of thing. Uh, yeah, um, my finding is that that doesn't happen too much. Um, okay. I also learned this when back when I used to run some adaptive games. There are quite a bit of two O's in adaptive, and that's what that's what brought forth the idea of just playing the first two rounds and giving a point advantage to the person that mm. went two O. I get it. So it's the stats from regular adaptive uh, led to you understanding that there was an ease to just have only two games, and you would see things resolve themselves naturally. It's more that the chain bidding at the end created sort of this balancing that you did not agree with and thought that it was not the most favorable way to play Keyforge in that sort of tournament setting. Yeah, I, I just 
don't particularly like the effect that chains have on the game, um, especially if there's a big disparity between the decks. Uh, like if if um, if you play Newton and one player brings a very bad deck and one brings very a very good deck, then yeah, it will end one one. But if that same thing happens and you bid chains afterwards, then the last game is kind of a coin toss because uh, the amount of chains on the stronger deck can lead to very bad hands of very bad hand splits and there's nothing you can do about it or just not drawing your key card, even though the deck is much stronger. And then it's just a matter of who who draws better in that variant. And it just doesn't feel like there is enough skill in that, in resolving that third game. Uh, where in uh, Newton, yeah, there's just not no way to resolve it. Yeah, you bought a very strong deck and I bought a very weak deck. So we just like skip the game and not really do anything, but there are more matches in which we can get advantage. We didn't get any disadvantage here, and it wasn't a coin toss who won it. Okay. So I'm, I'm guessing to play devil's advocate here, um, I think part of the strategy of Adaptive is to take that approach where you want to play the chain round and try and take the opponent to take a deck with a massive amount of chains and using that as a strategy, and you just feel that that is not the most appropriate way to play Keyforge because of uh, the fact that the draw could end up leading to just being like, okay, you you didn't actually win because you took a bunch of chains or for that matter, it was more like you just didn't draw as a result of having the chains and then couldn't cycle as easily to even try and get something going. Yeah, I mean... Just think think about a situation where uh, one deck has a very strong artifact, like, uh, let's say, Heart of the Forest, and the other player has artifact control. It doesn't matter which one of the decks is the stronger one. If it has a substantial amount of chains, then one of those decks might draw that uh, key card early, and the other one might not draw the, the answer or vice versa. And it's largely a matter of luck because you only draw like, I don't know, three, four cards at the beginning of the game. There's no way for you to cycle through your deck any faster to get to those important cards. Even if those amount of chains sort of balance out the deck's win rates over, say, 50 games. Okay. So basically, we're, like, we're looking at chains as something that might balance out the game after 50 plays, but you that, that doesn't work in one game. You feel that if, let's say, for example, the best of three aspect of having chains would actually reveal maybe a truer story than just having it happen in a one-game moment. So like, let's yeah. say, for example, there was some sort of data that suggested this is the stronger deck no matter what. So we're going to be playing bidding chains for which deck to play and then as a result you take the deck with chains and you play it each round in a best of three you're going to have a better idea of how that deck plays with chains than just in that one moment of that last game in the best of three it's less about you being familiar with the chains because that's something you can obviously practice but more that um Drawing not less like randomization, like you, yeah, you're the, not, like if you have one game where you just have the worst draw, and then because of change, you cannot draw as easily to kind of get out of that moment. It's it's going to take away the RNG of a feels bad game because you have another two to potentially see the deck just kind of do its thing, but under yeah. a restraint. I, I used to run uh, 
way back, I used to run um, ad- adaptive, uh, like a best of three match of adaptive where you bid chains every game. Mm. And uh, that re- had some very interesting revealing information because we also played it in duplication. So multiple players uh, played the same matchup. And uh, I had a very interesting result uh, with one of the games where uh, me and my opponent both bid on one of the decks and that deck won repeatedly. And another pair of players played the same two decks and they bid on the other deck and that deck won repeatedly. So (laughs) it it just gives me an idea that chains is, is weird. Right? <laughs> like it's not a consistent balancing system like you would think it would be based on how it is utilized within Exactly. Because because chains they they reduce your hand size and there's a reason you draw six cards in Keyforge. It's the 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 distribution of your hand is is more consistent and uh at, at six cards than it is at like say five cards. Um and if you if Keyforge just was just played with five cards. I think it would pre- produce a lot of much weaker turns overall. Mm. Sometimes, and sometimes you would just draw four cards, and that would be devastating. But it would be rarer. Hmm. Interesting. No, I, I hear what you're saying. No, that makes sense. So now that we've talked about it as a adaptive sort of balancing, re- removing chains, and playing this Newton. Well, let's talk about the discussion that happened between uh, Captain Stupendous and Sky Jedi. Basically, Captain Stupendous had this idea of using something called Dark Embers when it came to at the end of the the discussion. And then Sky Jedi was kind of being the devil's advocate to a degree to clarify this. If you're curious, you can go into uh, the, the Hell from Future Self. It's a quite a long discussion. It was summarized, and we'll talk about it here. But the idea in essence is instead of the deck being punished for being strong by being given chains, it's actually you're giving a boost to your opponent so that they have an advantage. So instead of reducing your ability to play the game, it's actually going to be something your opponent gets an advantage against you when playing. And I think that's a very interesting idea. And the idea behind Dark Ember is it's untouchable Ember. So you get that Ember to start in the same way like a power level in chains, but your opponent cannot touch that ember. It cannot be stolen, cannot be lost, cannot be captured. So what is, on like your first hot take, or what is your feelings about this? I really like it. Um, back when I was testing variants, uh, one of the things that I tested was uh, amber bidding instead of chain bidding, in which you gave your opponent uh, amber instead of taking chains, which is similar to uh, what uh, what was proposed here? Uh, only I did not think about untouchable amber. I I didn't have that idea, and we kind of struggled with um, balancing out the positive effects that it could have on your opponent. For example, if they bought a heavy shadow stick. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, back then, when I tested it, it was all right, but it wasn't perfect. And then we kind of abandoned it because it was just all right. You know, so it's like this. This is not exciting enough for the wide keyfold audience to adapt it, so we just abandoned it. But I think uh, having this amber untouchable uh, really solves most of the issues that we had while we tested it in a very elegant way. Mm-hmm. 
So now the the key things they say, stated in this was that the your dark ember is what they called it, and the idea was like there is different color ember now, and you'd have that represent this is cannot or must be forged first like it must be used to forge you can't stockpile it like if you're going to forge a key in any capacity you must use this ember first and then i think this is maybe something that i added or i can't remember if it was there but it was any ember gained once the game has started can now be targeted yep that makes sense now here's where things get i think a little bit more interesting and there's more of a discussion to be had about where the rules would fall upon things like too much to protect, doors up to heaven, drumble. So you have this these cards that only trigger when a threshold of ember is reached. Now, would it be that your dark ember counts towards this number, but due to the rules of dark ember, they cannot be taken, stolen, or any of that, but any ember above that amount suddenly is fair game for those cards? Yeah, so for example, if you had uh, four Dark Amber and four regular Amber and your opponent played TMTP, do they steal two or not? Yes, that is that is the debate that would have to be really clarified. For me personally, I think those cards should trigger in that manner in which they do because it essentially keeps the game moving. You don't have to have like a weird sort of... Uh, it's almost like the cards don't makes sense how they're printed if you start doing that and but having the rule where your dark ember cannot be stolen but due to your ember supply the ember in excess of your dark ember is a valid target i think is a very simple rules clarification for without having to go into to like specific card by card sort of dealings yeah i agree i think that uh, dark amber should uh, count for amber when uh checking for qualifications uh, but Again, they can't be touched. So if you indeed had uh, four and four, then you should be able to steal two with TMTP. And if you had uh, seven Dark Amber and one regular Amber, then TMTP will only steal one. Yes. And then I guess for Drumble, same sort of concept. Like you would, if it has seven or more, steal also be all Ember that isn't Dark Ember would then be captured onto Drumble. So that sort of thing. Yeah, which is a very weird situation for Drumble to be in. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Having captured less than seven amber, he's just sitting there confused. Like, how did yeah. I get four amber? <laughs> but yeah, that, that would that would be how it would work. And then I guess the last part of this that I'm kind of almost the most interested in is how do you determine the amount of dark amber your opponent gets? So, like, at how would that work in the same way chains do? Because I feel like you could probably use a similar sort of like the way the train the chain tracker wheel works. In a way, I feel like you could have a similar thing there. Like, as a dex power level has a certain sort of um, like the way chains are given, you give it the same way. So when you get a certain number and it goes up, and then I guess the the card reduction aspect is almost like the the balancing, um, and then if it got to the point where your opponent would start the game with six Dark Ember, do they get to forge a key at the start of their very first turn? Or do you implement a rule, you cannot forge a key on your very first turn with Dark Ember, meaning that you would actually have to wait until your next turn to be able to do that? 
and do key cheats then work as well in the same way so if you had to key charge in your opening hand you gain one ember you can key charge like things like that i'm wondering how those cards come into play because that i think is where the greatest complication would exist within um i would say you can forge at the beginning of your turn your first key um off the top yeah i i I mean uh, the, the the question does arise what happens if you have like 12 dark amber do you forge two keys on your first turn? like do you start the game with two keys and well, zero amber step, right you so you go you go to your forge step and it says you have six embers so therefore you forge anything in excess would stay so next turn you would then have another six embers you could forge again yeah and that's where i feel like the balance could get really out of whack potentially so it, it i guess it, it then comes down to how frequent do you give the ember the dark ember in relation to the power of it like how i think that is actually the hardest part of the equation is the distribution of it because if you start with three extra ember that's not exactly like a uh, or let's say two for example two is nothing it's like nothing really to be starting a game with you're not going to be getting that much of an advantage potentially off two yeah but neither is two chains yeah that's true that is true so you could have it so it inc- incrementally increases over time, just like chains do as you play in tournaments. So I, I guess, yeah, I guess it would kind of work out over time. And then I guess you would also lose your Dark Ember um, punishment. Uh, you're talking like in a chain-bound style? Yeah, so let's say, yeah, let's say we remove, like, because the idea of Dark Ember would be a balancing for decks coming to play, like strong decks being... Um, having to give an advantage to their opponent's deck in which case uh you could be playing it weekly and you could be playing the same deck over and over and other people are playing new decks for example and it coming into play so let's say we got rid of Chainbound and it was now called dark ember tournaments and then it existed i actually, I actually have less less of an issue with chains and chain bound events okay because because um in chain bound events it, it's 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 more casual to begin with Mm-hmm. And um, getting more chains on your deck is kind of a, a bragging rights anyway. So it's something okay. you do for yourself. You you want to get chains on your deck. That is exciting. It's fun. Um, like any any player that has a sizable collection and goes to chain bound events doesn't really have the the need to replay the same decks over and over again unless they want to get chains on their decks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because you you play those games over and if for example you you took a deck and you wanted to get like i don't know 15 chains on it then you can make as many attempts as you want and that balances out the randomness of the chains over time because you play a lot of games so you you, right. you go to a chain bound event there are three rounds you win two lose one you win one lose two until you manage to get a few wins in a row and then your chains uh, rack up and you get to your target number and you're happy um so i'm i'm less uh i'm I, like you're for less me, against in that yeah in in that context i think chains are fine they're fun uh they're interesting they uh make it so that people with uh, large collections uh, have incentive to vary their collection if they want to keep winning or play the same deck and uh you know try and get some chains on them for bragging and rice and maybe get to the point where they win half the time and then just go like, uh, maybe I need to improve my game in order to get better at this, which is also fun. Uh, but overall, it, it's, it's over many games. It's not just like a deciding game in a 
best of three in the finals of a tournament. Right. So you think this would be interesting to have the Dark Ember as like, instead of chain bidding, you're like Ember bidding basically for that last round to exactly, see yeah. how much of an advantage you should give them. Hmm. I, I honestly wasn't thinking of it in that context, but I, I actually think that is interesting because you're essentially giving keys away. Like how fast can your deck go to combat that? So yeah. Um, yeah, I think that is an interesting consideration. But I mean, I think also as as a format for like weekly events, it could be interesting as well. Oh yeah, it's definitely something fun to play with. And just saying that in general, I'm not object uh, objecting to using chains in in that in that context over many mm-hmm. games, over leagues, of you know casual play or. Uh, weekly right. tournaments in your local right. uh, game store. It could be fun to use uh, Dark Amber as well, you know, as a variant uh, and shake things up, play something different. Uh, but I, I just uh, don't have the same issue uh, with chains in that context as I have it in Adaptive. Which makes sense because you are actually playing a deck over and over again so that it then falls into the category of you're not just playing one game where RNG can really take the the leveling of it to... Like it's overbalanced almost for your opponent because of the fact that not only do you have chains, you also got a bad draw. So therefore the chains don't even matter because you're so far behind just on the RNG factor that came into play. Yeah. And it could also go the other way. Yeah. You can put like 18 yeah. chains on a decks and they draw, I don't know. Exactly what they need. To, Three daughters yeah. on the opening hand. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, do you have anything else you want to talk about with, with uh, this dark ember concept? Uh, no, I think it's a good idea. I'd be happy to test it. Um, I think it's it's really cool, and uh, maybe run a league uh, um, for it to see how it goes. Uh, I am running. Uh, decided that for the coming future, I will be running uh, uh, Newton leagues in uh, the Sanctimonious Time Shaper Discords, and everybody is invited to join. Um, it's extremely fun and very accessible. Just play two games. Uh, one with your own deck, one with your opponent's deck. Very light and fun. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, and if you, like I said, I, I didn't go into the full detail of Dark Ember. I kind of looked at all the notes and to a degree paraphrased into this. So I apologize, Captain Stupendous, if I took this in a direction that you did not mean. But uh, this is the way I interpreted it between yourself and Sky Jedi going back and forth. And uh, I just think it's a it's an interesting thing that could exist and... I mean, we all have these extra Ember tokens now from the Shadows and Dis prize kits that would be perfect usage as a Dark Ember to differentiate from your own if you weren't already using them as your staple. So with that being said, let's move on to our segment each episode of When Is This Card Good? brought to us by the great Zach Armstrong. And uh, he left it behind with him when he uh, moved on to Greener Pastures and no longer <laughs> on the Help from Future Self podcast. And this week, we will be talking about reverse time. So, Aurora, first thoughts on reverse time. Um, first of all, I love the cards. I don't think I have any deck with it that I like enjoy playing. And maybe I have like one with it, but I, I haven't, haven't really played it. Um, on paper... It's a very interesting card that asks you a very simple question. Is your discard pile right now better or worse than your deck? Yes, 
And I mean, it has great flavor text as well. It says dot, 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 time, back, turn, could, I, if. (laughs) That's awesome. It's a very fun one. And you're right. That is essentially what it says. And I think there's two ways we need to kind of look at this card. And the first is the fact that it existed in Coda. So it was in the original set and created some interesting moments before Arata came in for a library card. Library access. uh, Yes, sorry, library access, thank you. And then there's the second iteration is where it came in in Mass Mutations, which I think is the more interesting of the two times that it came back into play. Oh yeah, I I have not seen it in Mass Mutation at all. So yeah, it's it it is a rare, so it's not you don't see it too often. But the thing that makes it interesting a mass mutation is now you actually have all these enhancements. So cards that you play and end up in your discard could have a more valuable replay to them. And it's gonna obviously be on a case by case method. It doesn't just it's not just a blanket statement, it actually is enhancement based. How good could this card potentially make things? Yeah, it's a very interesting card. Like it has Obviously, the most impact when you get it relatively early, but not like on your first turn. Yes. Um, if you have a bit of a discard pile, particularly if that discard pile is all of the same house, then you can reverse time, put those back into your deck, and then only draw cards of one house. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, naturally, if you get that in combination with uh, library access at the beginning of the game, you can like play a bunch of Logos cards, reverse, reverse time, then play a bunch of Logos cards again, uh, which is also uh, very fun. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting card that has like nuance. Obviously, it has some combos, like uh, back in uh, in uh, Coda, you could uh, reverse time and then uh, arise everything from your discard pile. Right, yes. Yeah, that and- is uh, really fun for, for those ones, for sure. I guess you could do that in Mass Mutation 2 with, uh, how is it called, God, that archives an entire house? Um, not Stirring Grave. It's the, um, oh, I'm it, I'm drawing a blank right now. Let's go to yeah, Arcana. It is Grim Reminder. That's the one, which yeah, Grim I, Reminder. I think is really cool because then you can literally save it for your next turn to have this this just fat amount of uh of one house available, the creatures there for you. Um, I also kind of like it in the sense that there are cards that exist like in Furnace and things like that, speaking of Dis, where you may want to recur those more regularly. So that's also a really fun way for it as well, I think. Yeah. But the in, in essence, it really is a card that RNG is a big part of how good it is. Like, when is this card good? There is a strong RNG factor because if you draw it when you're halfway through your your deck, it's not going to have the same impact. Like you said, if you get it early and you got cards that you can put a chunk of one house as well, it really supports the way that works. Or if you get it at the end when you're about to shuffle, so then you can play stuff out after you've gone through your deck and then get some key cards potentially back, it creates that as well. So it's, it's kind of a a very interesting card in that it's not good necessarily right away, but you do have to kind of wait for your moment to use it. Yeah, you definitely want to think and not automatically play it. You, you want to put yes. some thought in, this, is this a good time to play reverse time or do I just discard it into my discard pile and go on drawing regularly? Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned the most 
the most ba- um, most advantageous way to play it is when you have not gone through a lot of your deck and you have a few cards and you can get stuff back. And one thing that I've noticed in my time playing this is it's possible that you have to be careful because when you keep getting it, you can almost like loop trap yourself where you are doing cool things and you're most likely in logos doing this and then you're playing it and then you obviously can get it back again. And then you start using it, but you have this issue where sometimes I feel that when you use reverse time, you're getting this moment early on that's really cool, but you're you're kind of setting yourself back to getting some of your other answers because yeah, of that's, the fact you've delayed. The, yeah, that's very like, true. Well, if you don't have like proper amber control in logos and you keep cycling logos, then you can lock yourself out of your amber control. Yeah, so that's that's the one thing I would say when when is this card good? This is when I feel it's not good, is when you you kind of keep playing it because you can, when you have to recognize maybe it's time to actually discard this and allow my deck to come forward more and give me some of the variety that the other houses provide. That's the only thing that I've noticed with it. But the um, the grim reminder thing that you mentioned or arise, I honestly never thought of that, and it seems so obvious now. Um, that's just a really fun way, especially if you can get it like really early. If you have arise, you just reverse time for almost no reason, just to flip your deck to do that. Uh, yeah, that's you a, could even go really turn cool. one, reverse time, phase shift arise. Yeah, that's a. Uh, that's a lot of fun. So there, there are some ways you can abuse this card, and you just got to think about ways that you can use discard manipulation. Obviously, there's not as powerful as that, but if there is something really good that you want to get out early, like let's say it's a Lord Invidious, you can get Exhumes into play doing the same sort of thing. You could get even... Um, what's the other card? Like there's also the the other one that's that's less good, the Stirring Grave, could just pull one card back into your archive and you have it ready to go. I mean, uh, for seed and a recursion. Yeah, there's just so much you can then suddenly pull from. Uh, I kind of like the stirring grave in a way because you choose one creature and you put it into your archive, and if it's like a big enough threat and your opponent knows it's there, it's like when is the archive being pulled? So it's it just creates <laughs> this looming sort of threat that you're gonna have to deal with at some point. So I always find the psychological aspect of something like that really fun. Yeah. So yeah, this I think reverse time has a lot of ways it can be good but i think out of i guess all the cards we've talked about so far in this it has the greatest like you can use this card and actually shoot yourself in the foot yeah for sure so that's going to do it for the episode topics but uh, of course we cannot end an episode without the titular segment and we call this one help from help future from self, future self. Aurora, I understand you have a topic of discussion for uh, Help from Future Self today. Yeah, I actually have an experience to share um, and something to think about. Um, Sometimes you play a game of Keyforge and you lose and you feel this was just horrible luck. This was just like my opponent drew the nuts. I had no chance at all. I got wiped completely from the game. I didn't have any chance to respond. And you just chalk it up to luck and you move on. But occasionally it's worth stopping to think, could I actually have done something different in this game to stop that from happening? And uh, yeah, sometimes it really was just luck, but sometimes it can provoke some thought. It can provoke some uh, some possible alternate plays, possible weaknesses in your play, 
possible advantages that you can get from a game when you play differently. Uh, I don't know, maybe you locked yourself in a 2-2-2 hand and you just realized after the game that if you would have played one house multiple times, then you could have gotten out of it. Uh, my recent experience, I've uh, played a sealed game with uh, Rise and uh, I got locked into uh, Logos two turns in a row with the uh, mark of this. And my initial reaction was, they had an insane hand. I couldn't have done anything. Uh, but then I started thinking back at the game and I realized that I really played into those mark of this. I played down uh, a daughter and another creature and I played a uh, forge compiler and they forged a key and I had two warded creatures with no other cards from that house in my hand. And that enabled them to just lock me into the house. Um, so sometimes it's worth considering whether it was really luck or whether it was something you could have played against. I, I like that. I mean, I think to a degree, luck is the ego speaking, saying that you're just chalking it off to luck instead of looking at yourself in the mirror of your play style and your maybe your decisions made. And it's very easy to just dismiss something due to bad luck obviously or rng for example being against you i mean there is obviously times when those things do come into play but i think within rng not being in your favor as well there is a degree of you should be looking at where you may have not been most optimal because i think we all at some point in a time especially i think unless you've played a deck in the 30 plus or maybe even 20 there's going to be things you're not doing to the most optimum it's just it's just the nature of getting used to things like even probably the best players you could make an alternate decision and and upon that moment it would have created a draw to go differently because you maybe would have drawn more or drawn less and by drawing less it actually you know it creates this butterfly effect within the game that you are not really aware of you don't take a moment to think about it so i like that like don't don't always chalk everything up to luck maybe first examine where you could have done things differently to change the outcome and then after that exploration if you still feel that no i'm not sure that would have really made a difference and maybe the bad luck was part of it yeah i mean or, or not you can also just you know enjoy keyforge take the loss yeah. say it was luck and uh don't introspect if that's uh, how you enjoy keyforge uh, I personally like to attempt to improve the game, so I'd like to try and make more introspection at my play and try to figure out what I could have done better. Very true. Play Keyforge the way you want to play, and if uh, just jamming the game and whatever happens, happens, it's time to move on to the next one, then that's that's you. Do you. And if and if you like to, to just take the time to think about the gameplay, then obviously that's also a course of action you can take. But the the long and the short of it is enjoy Keyforge how you enjoy Keyforge. It doesn't always have to be a competitive. It can just be a kitchen table good time. Yeah, for sure. So that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, Aurora, if people wish to reach out to you, what is the best way to do so? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at, at timeshapers1. Or you can find me on my website, uh, timeshapers.com, uh, where both myself and some guest authors, primarily John Ziegler, write a bunch of articles. And you can also find me on Discord, uh, Oro-3266. Perfect. 
And if you wish to reach out to me, you can find me on Discord. It's Boulevard Blake number sign 3840. And uh, I'm starting to put out content on my YouTube again. Although it is not primarily Keyforge, there is some Soulforge being thrown into it now as well as myself and Dan is someone are really getting Ooh, I want to watch some Soulforge. Oh, it's fun. Yeah, Dan, I have a bunch of games on there and I'm doing some more thought-provoking videos as well. Had a great game with Rick the other day and he uh, beat me real good because he's a, a really nice deck there. All right, friends, until next time, stay forging.